these MAGA justices are getting away with selling us out. This is a court that thinks that habeas should serve essentially no purpose at all. And that once you've been convicted, that's it for you. That any kind of further review is just a bonus. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the rule of law and the Supreme Court. I am Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover these topics for Slate. As we reach the one-year anniversary of the Dobbs decision this weekend, a Kaiser Family Foundation survey of 570 OBGYNs that was just released shows that 64% of OBGYNs believe Dobbs has worsened maternal mortality and 70% say it's worsened racial and ethnic inequities in access to medicine. According to NARAL, more than 26.1 million women are living under bans across 20 states. Nearly 14 million women now live in states where they are at risk of criminal punishment for accessing abortion care. If you are finding yourself trying to make all that concrete in your head, let me urge you to take some time to read Irene Carmon's devastating piece in New York Magazine, in which she profiles Dr. Yashika Robinson, who was providing both abortions and delivering babies in Alabama until Dobbs. She and her husband are now trying to open up a birth center and are being stymied at every single turn. For a state that purports to be pro-life, Alabama is failing dismally. And the physicians who are trying to give care are exhausted and demoralized, and they often feel like they are failing. Or you can go ahead and read the New York Times on all the clinics that have closed this year. Or you can listen to the heartbreaking reporting from Slate's podcast, The Waves, about the folks who are desperately trying to provide service and the folks desperately attempting to get service in a climate of fear, of no electoral power to change things. So that's a pretty good signal that all those hollow reassurances in the Dobbs opinion about how reproductive rights could be protected at the ballot box and that Dobbs would now finally end national uncertainty over what the law is have proven to be lies and misdirection. Dobbs ensures that pregnant people suffer, that pregnant families suffer. Dobbs ensures that pregnant people are isolated and starved for service. And that was the point. A year on, six in 10 voters remain opposed to the court's Dobbs decision. According to a just-released national NBC News poll, nearly 80% of female voters aged 18 to 49, two-thirds of suburban women, 60% of independents, even a third of Republican voters say they disapprove of Dobbs. And yet, while progressive Political leaders may have found their way to saying out loud that abortion is health care, that reproductive freedom is indeed a human right in their campaigns and their stump speeches. They are still evidently unable to talk about the Supreme Court that got us here, at least in concrete terms or within the arena of national politics in which the court has now squarely placed itself. So as we try to cover the high court as less inchoate legal abstraction and more political engine of massive social change and indeed suffering, we want to start this week's show with Anat Schenker Osorio. In just a moment or two, Anat is going to help us think through this knot we've tied ourselves into. We've got a court that has ended reproductive freedom and a substantial majority of voters who are angry and frustrated about it but don't know what to do about the court. Beyond the Dobbs anniversary, this week also saw a bunch of decisions from the Supreme Court in some important cases around President Biden's immigration priorities and habeas corpus rights. And we'll be delving into those with Mark Joseph Stern in our Opinion Palooza segment in the second half of the show. As you've probably discerned by now, Amicus is coming to you a whole bunch this month with shows every Saturday and emergency episodes when those big decisions come down. It's part of an embarrassment of riches of reporting on the court this June that you will find at Slate.com slash Opinion Palooza. Here on Amicus, we're offering all of our emergency episodes to all of our listeners rather than holding them behind the paywall as Slate Plus member exclusives. And we want to thank our Slate Plus members so much for supporting all the work we do here and making it possible for us to share these episodes with all of you. And that's not all. 
Even later in the show, our wonderful Slate Plus members will get to hear Mark and I do our darndest to answer some of the questions you've been sending in this week. If you'd like to join us, go to slate.com slash amicus plus. But first, let's turn to an old friend of the show, Anat Shankar Osorio, who's been thinking about the court from this perspective of public institution that doesn't get quite enough public attention. Anat Shankar Osorio first rocked our worlds on this podcast two years ago when she came on to talk about President Trump's second impeachment and how we talk about the U.S. Supreme Court. Anat is a messaging strategist, the founder of ASO Communications. She's also host of the podcast Words to Win By. Her work examines why certain messages fail and others deliver. Anat, welcome back. I've missed you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. So, listen, last week you published a piece in Slate explaining that progressive have this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to make the Supreme Court an actual election issue. And you wrote, quote, progressives looking to turn around these losses, the losses of last-term Supreme Court, progressives looking to turn around these losses actually have an unprecedented opportunity to step up, speak out, set ourselves up for electoral gains by bringing the Supreme Court to the fore of public attention and framing its actions Correctly, I I think the implication there, which I cannot dispute, is that Dems have actually done a pretty crap job of messaging the court and running on the court. Is that fair that just historically this is something we have just left lying around on the table and not handled well? Yeah, in a word, it's definitely something and not dissimilar to abortion itself, where we have essentially vacated the rhetorical playing field and thereby allowed the opposition to dominate the story of, in the latter case, what abortion is, what it means, how it plays into our lives, how it ought to be legislated or not. And in the case of the Supreme Court, the same thing. What is this institution? How is it operating? How are the people who are tasked with you know, supposedly interpreting the laws and the Constitution actually behaving. We've just kind of cleared the field and the opposition's discourse has become what is the dominant understanding. And I think that the most interesting thing to me about your research, and we'll talk about the specific research in a minute, but your research and your polling shows that even though sort of Dem leadership either doesn't grasp that this is an opportunity and a problem, or that they just don't know how to message the threat that's presented by this current Supreme Court conservative supermajority. Weirdly, the public already does kind of implicitly understand the problem, but their leaders aren't reflecting that in the discourse, and they're not shaping solutions in the discourse. So we have this kind of strange thing where, and I really saw it after Dobbs, It seemed like the public got it, at least at some visceral level, more readily than the leaders they elect. Yeah. And in fact, if I can pick up that thread and sort of keep going back and forth between Dobbs last year as we approach the anniversary and what's going on with the Supreme Court now, as you alluded, famously, after the Dobbs decision broke, there was pretty much silence from Democratic leadership for around two weeks as they hemmed and hawed. Nancy Pelosi stepped up to the podium and read a poem. Uh, top Biden advisor actually kind of lashed out and said, you know, Biden is not here to appease the kind of throngs and the left-wing loonies, those were in her words, but instead to sort of take a measured approach. And, And I would just add a data point to that. Throughout the entire period where, of course, we're seeing state after state after state pass what amounted to full on abortion bans, as late as 2018 in a comprehensive review of all political ads that, you know, came out on the Democratic side, very, very few of them mentioned healthcare and fewer still mentioned abortion. There was less than 1% of all ads that were utilized that even mentioned the topic. 
And so that was still going on in 2020, even as, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. She was, you know, unceremoniously replaced. Guttmacher Institute is reporting that state legislatures have, you know, banned abortion. And by the end of that year, 2019, there will be 25 new abortion bans. Still in 2020, you know, don't run on abortion, don't run on abortion. Again, in that election, around 1.5% of the Democratic ads mentioned abortion at all. More than twice as many Democratic ads mentioned China, just by point of comparison. We get to the midterms in 2022, and still, you know, of course, Planned Parenthood, NARAL, EMILY's List, other organizations like that— are screaming as they've been all along, mention abortion, mention abortion, mention abortion. And then suddenly the decision comes down. And just as you said, the public already got it. And in point of fact, and you know, as famously, the plural of anecdote is not data, but we were in focus groups every single week, two to four focus groups a week, every week with different demographics have been for the last three years. And what you could feel with the Dobbs decision, and I promise I'll come back to the present court, I haven't lost the thread, was things like these examples that are burned into my brain because they really typify. So group of dudes outside of Green Bay, Wisconsin, unrepentant moaning for 35 minutes about Democrats, every complaint under the sun, you can guess what they were, you know, can't stand them, spending money, the economy, bastards, you know, all of it. And then suddenly, on a dime, big dude looks like the box of refrigerator comes in, says, you know, at the end of the day, I can learn to live in a budget, but I'll be damned if I'm going to let some person from the government come into my bedroom and tell me and my wife what's going to happen with our family. Similar thing, Texas, bunch of women, again, Democrats, blah, 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 every insult under the sun. I'm doing a very good job not swearing. Thank you. And then one of them says, again, typical, we're seeing this over and over, prices go up, prices go down. I can figure out how to deal with that. What I cannot figure out is how to live without my freedom. And that's what we're hearing again and again. People are understanding And so, you know, suddenly 2022 becomes row, row, row the vote and row vember. And the Democrats have awakened to the fact that they can run on abortion, which they have been biting their tongue about for, you know, decades and not just biting their tongue, but calling themselves the big tent party and saying, it's fine if you have all sorts of views, essentially not standing up for anything and not claiming the debate not saying this is what this issue is about. Fast forward to now, and we have the exact same thing happening again with the Supreme Court. So what we see, just to take a very, very concrete example, when we, in the survey that we did in May, it was a 1,400-person survey, when we just listed the cases, we did not attempt to message them, we just gave the neutral media description, if one can ever call the media neutral, And then we asked forced choice questions. Why does it matter that they're forced choice questions? Because when you ask folks, you know, do you agree that this is bad? More of them are going to say, I agree, because there's a default tendency to want to sort of make nice and say the nice thing. So instead, we ask them, which of the following more accurately represents your view? The majority on the Supreme Court is taking away our freedoms or the Supreme Court is doing its job upholding the law and the Constitution. 54 to 33. 54% of people say the Supreme Court is taking away our freedoms. That leaves 14% of people unsure. So what does that mean? It means, A, that this argument, and we sort of did this forced choice in two different ways. We did the taking away our freedoms and ruling for the wealthy few. In both cases, People largely agree with that, and a sizable portion are unsure. What that means is that this storyline about what's going on with the MAGA justices on the Supreme Court is up for grabs. We're in a moment of sense-making. That doesn't happen that often. 
Usually, when people are thinking about politics, they have a baked-in calculus of what they already believe rooted in an identity that they have formed. And if we do not grab on to this moment of sense-making, then shame on us. We are going to pause now to hear from some of our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. More now with Anat Schenker Osorio. So I actually have one theory here because every single thing that you're saying completely resonates with my sense on the ground of how the public, both, you know, last term at the court, and we'll talk in a second about the, I, I don't even use the word ethics violations anymore or not because it's so beyond ethics and it's another framing problem we have, but the extracurricular activities of the justices. But I, I do think that one sticking point is that, and here I'm just going to sound like an idiot and say, like, when I talk to a lot of, like, Dems in leadership, they say, Either I don't understand the court well enough to talk about it, like I didn't go to law school, or even more dispiritingly, since there's nothing that can be done about it, I don't talk about it. And I wonder if part of this logjam you're describing where you have sort of a leadership class unwilling to touch this issue and a public that's clamoring for solutions is that they just don't have solutions. It feels as though this is this huge intractable mess. And if you say the words court packing, everybody immediately ignites in flames. And so there's a sort of a agreed upon problem and no agreed upon solution. And so what has seeped into our bones is just sort of helplessness, learned helplessness and, you know, hand wringing. Is that fair? I think I would love it to be the case that we have an agreed-upon problem. I actually think that that's a pretty generous interpretation of the way that democratic leadership is behaving. I think that when the response to something like the Clarence Thomas scandal's breaking, you know, the fact that he's, like, palling around with a billionaire and essentially putting on display the fact that you can pay not just to hang out with the justice, but you can pay to have the rules rigged in your favor— and the response to that is to issue a letter in the passive voice saying, you know, something must be done. It's like, hey, buddy, turns out you're the doer, so perhaps you should reword that and put yourself in the ancient position of that sentence. I don't think that we have an agreed-upon definition of what the problem is. So my answer to your question is actually, and, and I don't say this just to be sort of blowing beautiful, sparkly smoke at you, I think the piece that you have out in Slate that you co-authored with Michael Podhorzer is why. I think that there is this attachment. It even has a name in psychology. It's called system justification, and it's very, very real. System justification is this kind of natural human proclivity, and there's evolutionarily beneficial reasons for why it exists, to think that things are going to be okay there is order to the universe. Things will sort of turn out as they're meant to do. And what's interesting about system justification is that it tracks really, really closely with political ideology. People who are more inclined to be system justifiers are more conservative. And that can both mean conservative in kind of the traditional right-wing sense, but it can also mean more attached to norms. And that generally comes from people for whom those standards, norms, traditions, the way we've always done things have been 
extraordinarily beneficial. So people at the top of the societal hierarchy, of course, benefit from saying, hey, you know what? The system's good. So I think the unwillingness to actually call a spade a spade, maybe it comes or maybe it's justified by, but there's no actual solution. But I don't think that's where it emerges from. I think it emerges from a false model that you rightly wrote about where, you know, if we behave well, like, you know, if we go high to sort of paraphrase Michelle Obama, then they're going to come on up here and sort of hang out with us. When in fact, as I frequently tell folks, you can keep turning the other cheek. I promise they'll keep slapping you. What you just said dovetails so beautifully with your little beat in your piece. This does sound like it's like, read Slate because we're both amazing. But your really good piece had a nice beat about why the court's approval ratings, at least, (laughs) we'll we'll see what happens now after Justice Alito, but 538 polling last month showed a bump uh, that approval ratings had kind of crept back post-Dobbs. That's that sort of earned approval, it's that sort of unthinking reverter to defending institutions as working that helps us move through the world and be sane, right? So what that 538 poll showed, and it was longitudinal, so it was an aggregate of different kinds of polls to try to get us a more accurate number, was that after the Supreme Court net approval rating had hit a nadir around Dobbs, unsurprisingly, for reasons we all know, it has sort of sort of recovered now, by which I mean it's still negative, but it's not as negative. It's kind of poised at the precipice. What that says is out of sight is out of mind. And it's precisely what you lifted up in your question, left to their own devices. And again, you know, you don't do, you don't observe focus groups as a way to feel better about America. System justification is on display at all times. People really desperately need to believe that something's going to be okay. So even, for example, after the attack on our country on January 6th, right? The attempt to overthrow our election and invalidate people's votes and refuse to peacefully transfer power, all of which is, you know, should be pretty jaw-dropping, people would say to us, yeah, you know, that was real, real bad, real bad. But, I mean, Biden's the president. He got sworn in. It worked out in the end. And again, after 2022, you know, there were threats. I heard there were some people in Arizona with some guns at some ballot drop box places probably not the best look. But you know, in the end, the winners won. They got sworn in. It's extraordinary. People's need to believe in kind of maybe not an essential rightness of the universe, but an essential sort of someone knows what to do. Some Someone's got this. It's not me because I definitely don't got this. And I think that unless and until Democrats in leadership understand that what people need is a through line, a connection between this authoritarian or fascist agenda that is being perpetrated from the House of Representatives in red state legislatures and by these mega justices in, you know, another kind of robe, unless they understand this is part and parcel of an authoritarian agenda agenda to serve the wealthy few and to take away our freedoms, I keep repeating that because it's important to repeat, then they actually, we cannot crystallize this need to want leaders who will do something about it, which is ultimately the theory of change. I guess we do have to talk about Justice Alito and, you know, this week's revelations that he was, as you said, you know, as one does, traveling around with billionaire donors who also had a case before the court, which weirdly uh, was decided in his favor and the justice both failed to disclose the trip. And then he thought somehow it was a great idea to defend himself in paywalled uh, Wall Street Journal editorial pages pre-budding the story before it even published uh, in ProPublica. All of this goes to your essential arguments about how we should do a better job thinking about talking about the Supreme Court. 
And I would love if you would walk us through both what the media and political leadership should be doing this week around this story, what kinds of language and framing to use. Because as you said, you know, I think if we get another vanilla mayonnaise you know, Betty Crocker frosting, like something should be done uh, from leadership, I will, in fact, burst into flame. So walk us through (laughs) how that story should be woven into the narrative about this is a court that is in the tank for billionaires and is taking away your freedom. How would you do that? Yeah. So I want to pick up on something you said earlier and bring that in. And what you said earlier is, you know, ethics, but it goes beyond ethics. So that's actually a great jumping off point. Talking about this as a violation of norms, as a violation of ethics, as, you know, failure to disclose. What we see in our research, don't do that. And the reason why don't do that is because whether we like it or not, Voters have baked into their calculus that when it comes to the political arena, and yes, they do see justices, they do see the Supreme Court as part of the political arena, the jig is up. They do not see them as these sort of independent, apolitical judicial actors. They do think that they are part of a political story. They put them in that bucket. That's the container that they occupy. Baked into their calculus is that violations of ethics are just de rigueur. That doesn't mean they like it, but it's just the same as when we tell people such and such corporation or such and such billionaire exploited tax loopholes to pay nothing. People's response to that is like, well, sounds smart. Sounds like they have a good accountant. Again, not something they love, but not something that sort of signals to them, oh, wow, this is many standard deviations off of political behavior that is repugnant to me, but I'm not really going to get hot and bothered about it. We need to get people hot and bothered and ethics and sort of rule of law and the things that they were not excited about in civics class during junior high or high school, also not excited about now, even post-puberty. So instead, what we need to talk about is the money, as you already had. So what does that mean? It means focusing in on corruption and on palling around with billionaires in order to decide for them how the law should go, in order to rule in favor of the wealthy few and against the interests of working people. People need to feel that connection back to how what's happening among these MAGA justices. And notice, I don't say in the Supreme Court, at the Supreme Court, with the Supreme Court. I keep saying among these MAGA justices, that's also really important. We don't want to make the object that we are impugning the Supreme Court itself because you're right. People can't do anything about the Supreme Court. It's a building and what are they supposed to do? But when we talk about these individuals or them as a grouping, number one, it makes that link back to the broader agenda that I discussed earlier. And number two, you can do things about individuals. It makes it less like this sort of all-encompassing force or institution and really how would you penetrate that. So we want to talk about how these MAGA justices are getting away with selling us out, with hanging out with their billionaire backers, no different than the MAGA Republicans that helped bring them to these positions, no different than the MAGA Republicans who rule in these red states to take away our freedoms and hand corporations unending power at the expense of working people, that they're doing the very same. That's the way that we need to frame this for people, also because it's true. We're going to take a quick break back very soon with more from Anat Shankar Osorio. We're working to create a new type of Supreme Court coverage on Amicus and here at Slate more broadly, and we'd love for you to join us. You can find a whole heap of stories at slate.com slash opinion palooza, and you can get a handy roundup of everything we're doing in our newsletter at slate.com slash opinion palooza slash newsletter.
Also, please consider becoming a Slate Plus member. Our bonus episodes will be available to all for a limited time, but members never, ever miss a moment of Amicus. Find out more at slate.com slash Amicus Plus. Let's return to my conversation with Anat Schenker Osorio about shifting public perception of the court and why politicians seem unable or unwilling to act on it. So I think this leads me to <laughs> the thing that I, I really wanted to ask you about, because my first of all, I just want to say I've learned so much from you in terms of how to talk about things in ways that are salient and not dorky the way I think we in the Supreme Court press corps particularly sometimes, you know, really pride ourselves on being wonky and technical and jargony. And I think I've learned a ton, but I there is this slight Gordian knot here, which is, you know, since in the year since Dobbs, what I've been clearly wrongly emphasizing when people say, but how can a court, you know, <laughs> that has a, an unelected majority of people who, you know, are violating what 80% of the public want in the case of, you know, abortion or guns or the environment, like, how can this happen? And I keep saying, you have to look at the system, you have to look at the system, right? This is a system. And it, you know, involves Leonard Leo and dark money. And as you said, it involves Citizens United and Shelby County and, you know, gerrymandered red states. There's no way to explain these outcomes unless you are talking about systems and processes. And I'm hearing you say, and I, it is clearly true, because when I give that speech, I actually see people's eyes close in front of me. So I know this is not salient or resonant, but it is the systems that we need to explain. Because if you don't explain pay-to-play justices and why is Leonard Leo <laughs> giving money to Ginny Thomas um, and asking Kellyanne Conway to keep her name off it, then it's not possible to explain the scheme. And so I'm, I'm really caught in this intractable problem, which is if you hyper-focus on the case, you miss the systems problem. And what you have clearly pointed out, which I know to be true, which is nobody cares about the system problem. Yeah. So here's my response to that. My response to that is that a message is only as good as fulfilling the job that it's intended for. In my line of work, the job of messages, they only have two jobs. They're to make people believe what we need them to believe and make them act the way we need them to act. There are many other reasons to communicate with people. There are journalistic reasons. There are policy reasons. There are fundraising reasons. There are being a teacher reasons. And so arguably in other contexts, the desire to be comprehensive I understand. I really do. I understand the desire to be comprehensive. However, when it comes to strategic communications, when it comes to political messaging, you definitely do not want to be comprehensive, and comprehensive is not your pal. So it's not that there is no place or role for talking about systems. It's that that kind of language does not lend itself towards organizing people towards catalyzing public action. Because in point of fact, there are no such things as systems. There are people in power who make decisions. And sure, there's lots and lots and lots of them, but you cannot organize a protest or a tweet storm or send mail to systemic oppression or, you know, the criminal legal system or the carceral state. I mean, there are many, many arenas in progressive politics in which people rely upon this disembodied kind of passive. The same thing happens, by the way, with climate change. When we make climate change the agent of our sentences, you can't actually go protest climate change. I'm sorry to tell you. What you can do is tell Chevron to back the F up, right? So, there are no such thing as systems. There are people in power who make decisions. And that any organizer will tell you is sort of step one is making a power analysis toward getting people to want to, to make any kind of change. And so the problem with the systems talk is that it allows people to do nothing because there is, in fact, nothing that you can do. You can, however, 
organize some sort of concerted demonstration, even against one of these billionaires, right? They operate out of some sort of building in a place and you could go and you could do something there that it would least be visible and memorable and demonstrate that the public is not going to have this. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem with this kind of language. You can't send an angry email to, you know, racialized gerrymandering or climate change or (laughs) systemic oppression. I mean, I don't know where they live. I don't know their email address, but... No, it's a good answer. You know, what you're making me think about again is like this Harlan Crow story and it's sort of knock-on stories. You know, I've also like been invited to be on like sports radio (laughs) shows this year because it's salient. People care. They get it. Like they get grift. And trying to explain Leonard Leo and the multiple shell companies is not something necessarily that I should be spending a ton of time on. I do want to land with one question for you on that, which, you know, I'm surprised at how late in the game, like Gallup started polling about the Supreme Court. Like, we have come to polling public opinion about the court very, very late. And I think a lot of the sort of stasis or the just stuckness that you describe is that progressives just, I think, really were victims of, you know, your system justification, which was like the court, you know, you can love it, you can hate it, but who cares what the public thinks about it because they're gods. Is that changed forever now? Like, is the era of treating the court as though there's no need to pull around it because their oracles. That's over now, right? Now the question is, we've got the data, we have to figure out what to do. I feel like I'm not qualified to answer the question of whether that era is over, because I think that we both know and we've both seen that the biggest system justifier that there is is the media, and the polling industry is in some ways, at least with public polling, an extension of that same idea, where I mean, it's somewhat mystifying to me. There's this kind of chasing of what's popular or what's newsworthy. I mean, this is the grand irony, right? People are like, well, we can't, we're not going to talk about that. That's not newsworthy. I'm like, you literally are the news. Like, you decide what is newsworthy by making it news. Why are you pretending like there's some kind of external force over here and then you're just going and running after it? I think... I want to believe that Gallup and other kind of big institutional public pollsters that conduct research that's visible have gotten a clue and seen that this is a major factor in public life and it needs to be understood and monitored. But even still, I mean, when we see polling questions and, you know, we all have our own particular like beefs and, of course, The way that polling questions are worded is one of my many beefs because that's an area in which I spend the majority of my time. And, you know, we see these questions, for example, around Trump's indictment that are asked, you know, should he be pardoned for the sake of national unity? I'm like, why did you ask for the sake of national unity? Why didn't you ask, should he be brought to justice for the sake of equality under the law? You could ask that question, but that's not what you ask. And then you report, oh, actually, turns out, friends, People want to see him walk. That's bullshit. People have been primed with an expectation that you told them that this is the way to achieve something that they've been told that they want, but in point of fact, it wouldn't achieve it at all. And when push comes to shove, what people actually want is to be able to put food on the table and be home in time to eat it. And you know what's getting in their way? It's all these rich people (laughs) who are, again, deciding for themselves which laws are going to apply and taking the wealth our work creates, and if they can, stealing a slice of our freedom on the way to their yacht. Well, boom. That's the message. Uh, Go forth, listeners, and purvey it, and stop talking about wonkiness. Anat Shanker Osorio is a messaging strategist, founder of ASO Communications. She's also host of the podcast Words to Win By, and maybe um, for my purposes, she is the single greatest conveyor of the hashtag, you're doing it wrong, that I have ever met, because I often 
feel after um, I've had a brain dump for you that I want to go back and relive the last seven years of my professional life. So thank you, Anat, for being with us. And thank you so, so much for your incredible reframe, particularly on this one year anniversary of Dobbs. Now more than ever, this is a conversation we need to be having about the court. So as I noted at the top of the show, we did actually get a slew of opinions from the court this week, although they have very kindly reserved every last one of the really big blockbusters for next week, which means, yeah, next week is going to be really just a lot of much. Um, But we did want to check in with Mark Joseph Stern again about a couple of really consequential cases that came down Thursday and Friday. Uh, One is Hendricks, which is unfortunately, Mark, one of those 6-3 wonders where you have Clarence Thomas writing Ketanji Brown-Jackson dissenting, and it feels very much like the court we remember from last term. Yeah, this is a really brutal decision. There's no way to sugarcoat it. It's awful. This is a decision that will ensure that innocent people, people who did not commit criminal conduct, are held in prison for years, possibly for the rest of their lives, because this Supreme Court simply doesn't believe in habeas review and will warp any text or tradition or precedent that it needs to to prevent people who should not be in prison from actually getting out or even having a federal judge hear their claim. So this is a case by a guy who really, again, should not be in prison. He was convicted of conduct that the Supreme Court has since found was not criminal. And there is a federal statute that says, look, after you've been convicted, and after you've run out of your immediate appeals, you can still attack your conviction through what we call habeas review. And you can do that first for whatever reason you want, basically. And then after that, for a limited number of reasons. One reason is because there's new evidence that is put forward that suggests, you know, that you might be innocent, that you might have been wrongfully convicted, whatever. Another is that there was a new constitutional decision by the Supreme Court that applies retroactively and applies to you. And then there is this catch-all provision known as a savings clause that says if these provisions don't apply to you, if they are inadequate or ineffective to test the legality of your detention, then you can challenge your detention under this other statute, which serves essentially the same purpose and lets you bring forward your claim and have a judge say, are you innocent? Then perhaps you shouldn't be in prison. So this system is not perfect, but for a while it has basically worked in cases like this. Somebody is convicted. A court later says, oh, this law was interpreted incorrectly and you're actually innocent. They bring their claim forward. And even though it might be their second or third or even fourth habeas petition, because this one statute does not give them an opportunity to test the legality of their detention, they bounce to this other one and they say, hey, judge, you need to look at this and see if I deserve to be set free. In Jones v. Hendricks, the Supreme Court destroyed that process. Just as Clarence Thomas's opinion for the court blew up that savings clause, that kind of escape hatch for when you are languishing under an unjust sentence, and said pretty much that it does nothing. That if you cannot effectively test the legality of your detention under the main statute, that you're out of luck. Even if you are legally innocent, even if you did not commit criminal conduct. And he got there, and this is like the part that really kills me. He got there by not only warping the history of habeas, which is par for the course, but by defining the terms inadequate or ineffective to test the legality of your detention in a way that is not just narrow but absurd. So Katanji Brown-Jackson and Sotomayor and Kagan all say, hey, look, these words mean what they say. If you can't challenge it under this statute, then you have another opportunity through a different portion of the law. And Clarence Thomas says, no, 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 no. The only time that you're truly facing an issue of not being able to adequately and effectively testing the legality of your detention is when the courthouse 
that you want to review your claim has been demolished in a mudslide or has been abolished by a federal statute or literally no longer exists. So if the courthouse was in the Panama Canal zone and that no longer has federal jurisdiction, then you can't bring your claim. If the courthouse was destroyed in a volcano explosion, then you cannot bring your claim. But anything short of that does not qualify for this savings clause and you're out of luck. And he said, yeah, this means that people who committed conduct that's not criminal will languish in prison. But in this instance, Congress chose finality of conviction over error correction. And that means that some innocent people are just going to stay stuck in prison. And it's just of a piece with that whole vibe, right, that we've had for years and years now, which is there's just too much process for everybody. Everybody's just getting too many bites at the apple. So the more we close these pathways to justice, including for those people who are innocent, including for those people where the state made an error, that's better for all of us to have less justice every time. Yeah. And it's it's very similar to the Barry Jones case from last term where the court said, oh, yeah, this guy may well be completely innocent, not just that he didn't commit conduct that's criminal under the statute, but he didn't do anything wrong. Even when a guy is completely innocent, he can be and must be denied habeas review. And thankfully, in the Barry Jones case, the Arizona attorney general switched hands from Republican to Democratic, and the Democratic attorney general essentially let Barry Jones free. So he has been spared the execution that the court tried to foist on him last term. But now we have this other case where there are going to be so many folks who, as you said, like should not be there, but the court said too bad. We think that the finality of your sentence overrides every other consideration of justice. And that, to me, is like a very perverse way of looking at the value of habeas. But this is a court that thinks that habeas should serve essentially no purpose at all. And that once you've been convicted, that's it for you, that any kind of further review is just a bonus. And federal courts have very little to no business engaging in it, even if you're clearly innocent. This is um, Steve Bright's book, The Fear of Too Much Justice, which is coming out, uh, and we're going to talk to him this summer in our book series. But this paradigm you've just described is like squarely the sort of target of what he's describing as a, a mindset that just, you know, nobody gets processed, too much process. Um, I, I want to give you a minute, Mark, to talk about what I think is actually kind of a blockbuster averted case, which is United States versus Texas. This was a challenge to President Biden's immigration priorities, and uh, it could have been a thing, but fizzles. What do you have to say, Mark, both about Justice Kavanaugh penning the opinion and the ways in which this could have been a swing and it wasn't? I mean, I think this decision is actually a big deal in a good way, because this is yet another case in which red states challenged President Biden's immigration policies. This time it was the priority guidelines wherein immigration officials were told, you need to prioritize arresting and deporting people who have criminal convictions, people who are suspected of terrorism, or people who very, very recently entered the country. Folks who don't fall into that category are not a priority for removal. This idea of prioritizing certain non-citizens over others. It has always existed in immigration law. It is called enforcement discretion. It is at the heart of the president's power here. And it's just a fact of life because there are millions and millions of unauthorized immigrants in this country. And there is literally no way that any administration, whether it's Trump's or Biden's, could arrest and remove all of them. And yet, in this case, Texas, joined by Louisiana, filed a lawsuit and said, oh, well, federal law says that you have to arrest all of these people and deport all of them. So we're going to demand a court order that vacates the priorities that have been set out here and essentially creates a free-for-all of arresting and removing with no real logical guidance to prioritize certain groups over others. Of course, the lower courts agreed with Texas because why? Texas filed this case in the Victoria Division of the Southern District of Texas, where one judge sits, one Drew Tipton, a Donald Trump appointee who had the distinct honor of issuing the first, but certainly not the last, nationwide injunction against Joe Biden during Biden's first week in office. So, of course, Drew Tipton issues this bonkers opinion saying, oh, the states have standing. This is all super illegal. I'm, you know, on a nationwide basis 
is just erasing these guidelines. It goes up to the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit says the same thing. And now the Supreme Court comes in, and by an eight-to-one vote, the court says that the states don't have standing to challenge these priorities in the first place. And that means the entire case gets tossed out. And the court divides along some interesting lines. So Justice Kavanaugh writes the majority opinion. That's joined by Roberts, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson. And the thrust of his opinion is basically, look, Enforcement discretion is a thing. We have never found that a plaintiff has a judicially cognizable interest in interfering with the president's enforcement discretion, especially in an area like this where he simply has to prioritize some groups over others. And so looking through history and tradition of how the courts have functioned, we just don't think this is the kind of suit that states are able to bring in the first place, which I think is right and I think is a fine hook to rest this on. But Justice Gorsuch, joined by Barrett and Thomas, comes in and really wants to push further. And Gorsuch takes direct aim, shockingly to me, at the judge shopping that went on in this case and at the universal remedies that judges like Drew Tipton have been doling out. So he says, look, you know, it's not really clear that federal law allows for this kind of universal erasure or vacatur, as courts call it, of an administration policy. Like, this is war the text. And even if Congress did allow it, it's not clear that this is an equitable power that federal courts even have in the first place. So the states were asking for something that they could not get. And that means that they obviously lack standing. And then he goes even further and sends a real warning shot, I think, to judges like Drew Tipton and Matthew Kaczmarek and all of these dudes in Texas who are issuing these sweeping nationwide injunctions saying, think twice and then think twice again, because this is almost certainly not lawful. What you are doing stretches the courts far beyond their lawful boundary under the Constitution. And sooner or later, we are going to have to step in and say so. And I think what's exciting about that is that if you already have Gorsuch, Barrett, and Thomas on board, then you only need two of the three liberals to agree. And that puts an end to this incessant volley of nationwide injunctions against the president that have essentially transferred power over immigration policy in the southern border from the Biden administration to a handful of Trump-appointed judges. So that is all a very good thing. I think it's notable that only Sam Alito dissented in this case. He is still the worst somehow after all these years, and I don't think that we should even bother talking about his opinion because it's garbage. But this was the court putting its foot down against these red state suits and saying, we're starting to think we've had enough of this and we don't want it to keep happening because it's really driving us bonkers. We're going to take a quick break. And back to Opinion Palooza on Amicus. It's so interesting, Mark, on a week that we've been kind of talking about the meta story of vending machine jurisprudence, right, where you take a judge out on a fishing boat or, you know, you uh, buy his mom a place to live and like cha-ching, you know, suddenly it feels as though the court is bought and sold. And I, I can't help but notice the kind of perfect symmetry of the court pushing back the vending machine justice that you get when you sort of very strategically file in a district court where you know you only have one judge. So it does feel like it's of a piece with that which the court is being criticized for, which is just how bought and sold the whole thing is, seems to be at least something that at the district court level, the court is like, well, that would be wildly inappropriate. Yeah, to some degree. And yet I think the court, the majority still has this instinct to stick it to Biden. And so what's what's notable here is that when this case came up on emergency appeal, like a year ago, the court refused to stay Drew Tipton's decision, refused to intervene by a five to four vote. The four women actually dissented, which is kind of an interesting dynamic. And then all of the justices in that majority, except for Alito, have now turned around and said, oh, this whole case was BS. The states never had standing in the first place. None of it was real. And so it's almost like they knew at the time, like, we're going to toss this out, but they wanted to spend another year screwing over Biden and, like, sending that message to him that, like, we're still in charge. We're the ones who call the shots. And then when they finally had to show their work, because that was all on the shadow docket, you know, they didn't have to say anything. Now that they're showing their work, they're like, okay, 
say, yeah, this was all BS. You know, obviously Biden probably should have won from the beginning, but we all had our fun. And now Texas has to take its ball and go home. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it continues this conversation we started earlier this week about what this kind of mincing away from the brink is. And part of it is like, we're not going to do your dirty work for you. You know, don't bring dumb suits. And part of it may or may not be something else. Stay tuned. Next week suggests we might be over the brink. But I guess before I say goodbye, I do want to flag. We did a whole show on this, but it is certainly the case that Justice Alito is now kind of stands alone in terms of his decision to make, I think our former colleague Jack Schaefer suggested it was the single worst journalistic decision in the history of a Supreme Court justice <laughs> publishing a prebuttal uh, long before the piece came out in ProPublica signaling that he was going to talk about it a lot. But is there Anything that suggests to you that there is some connection between what's going on inside the House and what's going on in the doctrine in the last couple of weeks, that the just sense of weird, frayed, this is not okay, please don't go on fishing trips and lie about it, is in any way inflecting in what's going on on the paper? Yeah, I mean, I'll refer listeners to our our previous episode where we investigated this as best we could. But I think like this holds that clearly Alito and Thomas are not drawing the other conservatives into their orbits, especially in big cases that have political valence. And really in cases that are just sort of the right thing versus raw partisanship, Alito still stands alone. Like this US v. Texas case is a perfect example of where Alito is the only one who is willing to debase himself by pretending to believe these outrageously bad, feeble, feeble arguments developed by Ken Paxton, the attorney general of Texas, who has now been impeached for bribery and corruption and fraud. Um, like Alito's the only one who's willing to sidle up to Ken Paxton and put his arm around his shoulder and say, hey, buddy, I'll still go fishing with you. And it's very difficult to draw the direct line between like the decisions and what's going on in the press and these scandals that keep falling around uh, Thomas and Alito. But it does seem like there are different visions of how this court should operate among the conservative justices. And there is increasingly a divide between Alito, who is the worst, and then Thomas to some extent, and the others who are trying to make it look like a court. I think mincing away from the brink is the best way of putting it. Like, it's not consistent. It's not a certainty. It's going to be two steps forward, one step back if it even keeps happening. But this court is conducting itself differently from last year. That doesn't mean its decisions are going to be better or that the court itself is more legitimate. It just means that there are some on the right who are really concerned about the loss of legitimacy that is reflected in every opinion poll and every news article about the court and are trying to find ways to help fix that problem that may be reflected in some of the doctrine coming out in these cases. Maybe the the coda to that, I think, very wise assessment is that the theme, at least thus far in the term, with the caveat that there is a lot to come next week, is, quote, no, really, really lie to me better, end quote, is the theme <laughs> of this term so far. Mark Joseph Stern covers the Supreme Court and the law and all the things for us at Slate. Mark uh, is going to stick around so Slate Plus folks can hear answers to their good questions in the Plus segment. But Mark, thank you so, so much. This week has been a thousand days and I couldn't have done it without you. Uh, I appreciate that. Next week will be 10,000 days and each will be more miserable than the last. So let's hang in there till the end of June. And then we are freed from this hell starting July 1st. But $10,000 bill, here's the thing I didn't know. Salmon Chase, Justice Salmon Chase, who should have been the lead of my salmon piece on Thursday. (laughs) Was on the $10,000 bill. Apparently, the $10,000 bill. I discovered this over salmon dinner with my family last night. You know, he was self-conscious about the name and described it as fishy. He knew. History reflects that he knew. And uh, I think that maybe Sam Alito was just trying to do him some justice by going on that trip and saying, in the steps of my forebears. What an amazing amount of self-knowledge from a Supreme Court justice to be able to know that something is fishy (laughs) as opposed to another 
who seemingly does Those not. Those were the days. Those were the days of Sam and Chase. $10,000 bill. Don't say you don't learn anything, Slate listeners. Every day we learn together. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. And thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can keep in touch at amicus at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio at Slate. And Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. Thanks also to Cameron Drews. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus very, very soon. Maybe Tuesday? Who knows? Until then, hang on in there. Thank you for listening. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.